We'll be looking in Luke chapter 1 between verses uh, 26 and um, uh, 38, although we're not going to cover, we're not going to really look tightly in all of that. But certainly during the Christmas season, we always like to take a few weeks and look at uh, various um, biblical uh, statements with regard to uh, Jesus uh, coming and living among men and being uh, the perfect uh, God-man who then lives and, and then is crucified and resurrected and will be returning. So this morning we're going to be looking at one of those texts in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 1. So let's have a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into the text. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we can spend a few moments looking at uh, the biblical story uh, within the greater historical redemptive story that you've given to us in 66 books. And uh, Lord, I pray this morning as we look at it that we will be reminded of uh, our need, we will be reminded of your answer for that need, and that we will be reminded of the ramifications of your answer in Jesus. And so Lord, I pray you'll help us as we consider this text. In your name I pray, amen. It is the Christmas season, and as we've talked about every Christmas season, it is easy to be distracted. It is easy to be caught up in all the wrong things and not be caught up in the right thing. This year, probably more so than most, uh, because not only do we have the Christmas season, but we also have all of the uh, crazy things that are going on in our world during the Christi Christmas season. And so it's very easy to become very, very distracted, whether it's distracted with the the joys of the season or whether it's being distracted by all the frustrations of the season or any combination of the same, correct? For some of us, life is seemingly going along very well. For some of us, life is kind of spinning wildly out of control. Um, ultimately, we know that it is not out of control. It is all in God's control, is it not? Always. But be it as it may, uh, whether we uh, are in either of those two categories, we do come to this season where we recognize and are reminded of uh, the reality of uh, Christ coming and living among men. And uh, as the answer to the dilemma of the ages, uh, the dilemma um, of the ages that began in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of mankind. And yet even in Genesis chapter 3, the answer for the dilemma was prophesied. And uh, we come to the fullness of time almost 2,000 years ago and that, or actually 2,000 years ago plus, and the, uh, the dilemma was answered in Jesus. We who have faith in Christ, in what has been revealed about Christ in the scriptures, have our trust, our faith, our reliance, our dependence completely upon uh, what began in Bethlehem and was completed outside of Jerusalem on the cross and then the resurrection and then the hope and the promise of his return. Amen? With regard to that, we want to look at one of the texts that, um, that are part of that great storyline of what happened uh, that long time ago. So starting in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, Luke records this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end, or there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We're going to kind of wander through the text as we oftentimes do, starting in verse 26. And we're going to work our way through. I'm going to identify some things. Some of them are going to be uh, somewhat peripheral, but we're going to identify them briefly for uh, specific reasons. We're going to focus in on one major statement, and uh, then we will be done as we consider this uh, Christmas season and how we ought to think about uh, the Christmas season. You'll notice right away in verse 26, uh, Luke records it's the sixth month. Of, uh, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Um, you'll notice it says in the sixth month. Later on in the text, it says what that sixth month is. The sixth month is the sixth month of somebody else's pregnancy. Who is that other person? Elizabeth, good, and it, so is it, sh it, it is the sixth month of her pregnancy, so she's already six months in. Uh, the angel Gabriel appears to this virgin, a virgin who is betrothed to a man named Joseph, and that person, of course, is Mary. Uh, a couple things are, are interesting. You'll notice that this virgin is betrothed, and that is not the same as as uh, engagement, it is very much more significant than engagement. Engagement today can be broken relatively easy, right? You can just say, I don't want to marry you anymore, and so you don't get married. Betrothal was not that. Betrothal was basically a period of marriage without the final uh, conclusion of the uh, marriage, which is, of course, the uh, sexual involvement with a man and a woman. So everything else is in place. They're just not living together and having sexual relations yet. Uh, they're preparing for the actual wedding day, but they're viewed as already married. It's called uh, that they're betrothed, but they're viewed as they are going to be married. If they want to end this, they actually have to go through a divorce scenario. So it's much more significant than that. So Mary is betrothed to Joseph, uh, and, it, and notice right away that Luke identifies this person, Joseph, is of the house of David. You see that? It uh, goes on, and the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her, that is, Gabriel came to her and said to her, firstly, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I just want to pause on that initial statement of Gabriel. Uh, to, because it's been confused a lot, and so I want to pause on it. And the reason why it's been confused a lot is because this is the text that the Catholic Church takes the term that they, that they take when they say, Hail, what? 
Mary, full of grace. That's where this text comes from. Hail Mary, or that statement comes from, Hail Mary, full of grace. That comes out of the Latin Vulgate that the Catholic Church looks to, but it is actually a misunderstanding of the Greek that the Latin was built upon. It actually does not translate accurately full of grace. The word grace is in there. In the English, we translate it, at least in the ESV, O favored one. Jim, how does the King James translate it? What is it? Highly favored. Anybody else have a different translation? Found favor. And which one is that again? Holman. And once again, I have to say the Holman got it very close. I know you'd like to hear that. <laughs> the, 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 the translation, or I'm sorry, the word itself does have the word grace in it. You could understand it this way. Grace to you. Much grace to you. One who has received grace. It's not that grace is inherent in her at all. It's you have the idea is grace has been brought to you. Given to you. You are a recipient of God's grace. It's crucial. The difference is really striking. Grace coming to someone is because it's not inherent in them. It's not automatically within them. It's not by nature within them. Grace is given to someone who, by definition, doesn't what? Deserve it. They are undeserving of it. I don't want to camp on that too long, but it's a very, very important distinct distinction. Because the Catholic Church does look to Mary as someone who is capable of giving grace. And that is not the case. She is a recipient of grace. That's what this means. When in the, in the ESV it's translated, O favored one. Yes. She is a recipient of something that is undeserved. That's the point of the text. That's what it means. She is a recipient of something she does not deserve. And it's stunning what is she, she is a recipient of. The, the statement is, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And it is so telling, the very next verse, how she responds to this opening declaration. Her response is not, you're right. <laughs> I am full of grace. Yeah, that's not her response. Her response, look at it, verse 26, verse 29, I'm sorry. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What does that mean? For Mary, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. She's not tracking with it. For Mary, she's hearing this, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she's coming away saying, what? In her mind, there is, this is how she would be thinking. 
I shouldn't be favored. There's no reason for me to be favored. In Mary's mind, she would know the history. She would know the history very clearly. As a Jewish person, she would know very clearly that God has not spoken for 400 years. And why hasn't he? Because the history of Israel has been a history of what? Failure, rejection of God, turning away from God, rebelling against God. And in Mary's mind, there would be, there is only one thing left, and that is judgment. And her only hope would be not that an angel would appear to her saying, you're favored of God. Instead, it would be a declaration of anything that the Messiah had come. Nothing to do with Mary. Outside of a Messiah, for Mary, her understanding would be there is no hope. That's why you see 30-some years later, what are the people crying at the triumphal entry? Hosanna in the highest. They're crying out for the Redeemer, the Messiah. Now, they're missing the understanding, the correct understanding, but they're recognizing their only hope is what? The Messiah. That's the only hope. The hope is not within them. Their only hope is the Messiah. For Mary, her only hope would not be that she has, she's full of grace. Her only hope is Messiah. So this idea, oh, favored one, would make no sense to her. Which is why, verse 29, she's greatly, she's not just troubled. She's not just confused. She's greatly troubled at the saying. And so in her mind, she's trying to discern, what is this all about? That's what it means. What is this all about? This doesn't make any sense. And we discover very quickly that this troubledness is so deep that she's terrified. And we know that's the history, right? It always is the history. Angel, angel meets you, you're terrified, right? And here that's exactly what happens, which is why in verse 30 the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Why? Because she's absolutely terrified. She's troubled. She's deeply distressed over this appearing of Gabriel before her and telling her she's favored. What, what is this, some sort of joke? Is this some sort of setup? Is this some sort of setup before my destruction? What in the world is going on? Is this sarcasm? What is this? Do not be afraid, Mary, verse 30, for you have found favor with God. Now, we need to pause on this for a second. This statement is an interesting statement, for you have found favor with God. If what I said 
in verse 28 is true, this her finding favor with God is not about her. Because verse 28 is about God putting, sending grace upon her. Correct? I've heard so many, both Protestants and Catholics say, for example, well, the reason why God found favor with her because she was so faithful. Can I just ask you? First, what evidence do we have of that? Do we have any evidence of that? No, we don't. Number two, We've got to ask ourselves theologically, if God finds favor with her, why would he find favor with her? It's his, for his glory and, what did you say, Tom? His good pleasure. Because she needs it. Why did God find favor, if I may use the term, with Noah in contrast with everyone else? Is it because he's a good guy? No. It's, again, because of his good pleasure. If there's anything good in Noah, why is that? Ever. The case. Because God is at work in him. Correct? Grace. Does that make sense? Grace. Here we find Mary, she's a recipient of grace, verse 28. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He, she found favor with God, why? Because God is a merciful, gracious God. Not because of anything in Mary. The storyline of Mary is the same storyline of anyone else since the fall. Anyone and everyone. She was born a sinner, and that's who she was. She remained a sinner, and God mercifully and graciously shines her, his favor upon her. That's why it happens. That's why this story starts out this way. Now, the evidence that God is sh shining his favor on her starts to show itself, right? And shining grace upon her, it shows itself, doesn't it? We're going to see that in a little bit. But I, if I may just point it out to you, at the very end of the storyline that we read, verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am, your servant of the, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me according to your word. Where'd that come from? That's what she's saying. Where'd that come from? The Holy Spirit came from God's grace shining upon her. Right? That's not because grace, because she's full of grace. It's because God's grace is shining upon her. God was bringing to her what she did not innately have. Make sense? Crucially understand the distinction. Say that again. Yes. Exactly. Absolutely. No question about that. So the angel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And from there, he declares what the favor is. And you know what's interesting? The favor has very little to do with her except for she's going to carry a child. Has very little to do with her. Doesn't it? Because the favor is not 
on her. It's on who she will carry and who he will be. Make sense? So from there on, 31 and following, he begins to present this to her. And here's what he says, 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He tells this virgin by the name of Mary, you will bear a son, and his name, you'll call his name Jesus. Now, we can't miss the point that the name Jesus is uh, connected very closely to, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, very closely connected to who? In the Old Testament. Joshua. And there's no question that God used Joshua to do what? To bring the people into the promised land. And we certainly can't miss that connection. We don't want to spend too much time on that today, but that connection is, is there to be seen. That that that, that was an a, 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 a imperfect, granted imperfect picture, but a picture of what Jesus is going to do, bring the people into the promised land and kingdom. Yes, exactly. That's all I really want to say at that, about that at this point in time. A little priming of the pump for you to consider. <clears throat> it says that, again, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32 and 33, then the angel gives, Jesus, uh, gives Mary five statements about Jesus. This baby that she will give birth to. Five declarations, all five of which are declarations coming directly out of the Old Testament. They are directly connected to prophecies of the Old Testament. So these are restatements of prophecies of the Old Testament and they are, they are so therefore they are prophecies given by Gabriel to Mary but they become more specified because before they were pretty generic and now they become very specified, very focused upon this child that is to be conceived and born. And the five statements are found in verse 32 and 33. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Five prophecies with regard to Jesus. And that's what we want to kind of zero in on today. Not going to go back and forth and look at all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, some of them were found in um, the passage that Tom read this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But I want you to notice them. The statement, verse 32. First prophecy, this baby who will be born, that Mary should call Jesus, he will be great. That's an interesting statement. That's an interesting prophecy. And the reason why it's an interesting prophecy is because, and, so, and the reason why I want to recognize it right off in the beginning here is because some of these prophecies, in fact, for the most part, all these prophecies are not really fulfilled in Jesus' time physically on the earth. Somewhat are, but not completely. 
I want you to notice the very first prophecy, he will be great about this Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Was he great when he was on the earth? At some level, right? At some level, he was great, wasn't he? He performed miracles, didn't he? He rose people from the dead. He changed water to wine. And for a short period of time, he had a whole lot of people following him, didn't he? But it wasn't completely fulfilled there. You see, the statement, he was great, is going to become much more dramatic than that. We could argue that his greatness was not, in his earthly time on this planet, was not, did not reach its pinnacle at the triumphal entry. There were probably more people cheering for him and loving all over him than any, any other time, wasn't there? Wasn't that like the pinnacle of the people's response to him? So from a, from a human perspective, his greatness probably reached its pinnacle then, didn't it? But that's not the pinnacle. That's not even close. See, his greatness that is referred to here, his greatness that's referenced here is not about his miracles. His greatness is not about having 12 people follow him. His greatness is not about even having all these people chasing him around the Sea of Galilee. His greatness is not being referenced as in the greatness will be displayed on his triumphal entry. His greatness will, is not being referenced in that there's going to be about two years later or so, maybe not quite two years later, three kings from the east are going to come and give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. His greatness will firstly be displayed. His greatness for the first time will be displayed when everyone leaves him. His greatness will for the first time really be on display when everyone turns their back on him. His greatness will for the first time really be on display in his lowest, lowest of times. His greatness will first be on display, really be on display. Now, those, other, those other things were part of it, but they were totally misunderstood, and people are totally mis misresponding to him. His greatness will for the first time really be on, uh, on display. when humans aren't involved at all except for in despising and rejecting him. Isaiah 53. His greatness will be for the first time displayed when everyone rejects him and they drive nails through him and they whip him and they hang him on a tree. His greatness is on display, is it not? when he takes on the wrath of God because he took on your sin and mine and the ramifications and the result of that is the absolute power of Satan and sin and death that everyone 
longed for a solution to was finally conquered? Absolutely conquered? The thing that no one could conquer, he conquered. The one no one could conquer, he conquered. And the veil is torn in two. And his greatness is displayed. How great was his greatness? The wrath of God was satisfied. Wasn't it? Sin was atoned for. Wrath was dealt with. And then three days later, the reality of that greatness was on full display, wasn't it? When the tomb was rolled away and Jesus walked out of the grave. Amen? Oh, but it gets better. Doesn't it? His greatness is on display from then on out, is it not? Because what does he do for the next 40 days? He appears before men. He talks to his disciples. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. He reminds them that this had to take place. That the entire, here goes, ready? The greatness of Jesus, he, his name will be great. He will be great. What happens? Jesus explains to the disciples the entire Old Testament did what? Pointed to him. Sounds pretty great to me, doesn't it? And then 40 days later, he does what? He ascends to heaven, and before he descend, ascends, he says what? He, he, I'll be back. Right? I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to return. You know what he says? It's all about his kingdom. He's the king. And what do we have before then? We have Matthew 28. What does he say? All authority, all power has been given unto me. Very, as we said before, very much kingdom statements. It is king statements of the kingdom, is it not? What does he say? He will be great. Hmm. Now everything else is going to flow out of that statement. He will be great. That's the first prophecy. It goes on. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Most High is who? God the Father, right? And he will be called Son of the Most High. And he is, throughout the Gospels, he's called the Son of God. In the New Testament epistles, he's called the Son of God. We recognize him, we refer to him as the Son of God because he is. He will be called the Son of God because He is. Now the word, the Son of the, the words the Son of the Most High are very important words. Because when you say the Son of in that, in that time frame, it referenced that you had the same attributes, the same characteristics, the same, you're the same as. We don't necessarily think of that today when we say the son of. But that's what it meant in that day. When he says the son of, he'll be called the son of the most high. He will have the same 
attributes. The reason why they will call him the Son of the Most High is because he will have the same attributes. He will be the same as the Most High. That's the declaration. He goes on. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Goes directly back to, this begins the direct connection to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophecy to David was that his descendant, in fact it doesn't just say descendant, it says descendants, will sit on his throne. And here, the, a, the angel Gabriel declares, and the Lord God, that is God the Father, will give to him the throne of his father David. That's a stunning statement. Because there has been no king of, that's in the line of David. For centuries, there's been no king. The line has been cut off. Prophecy was that, that 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 line would continue, but the line had been cut off. Without hope, it was done for generations. Done. All they had was an echo. That's it. Just an echo. What was the echo? People still knew who was in the line of David. But how far had it fallen? Well, Joseph was in the line of David. He was in the kingly line. But who's Joseph? He's just a carpenter. He was just a carpenter. That would be unheard of in the line of a king. He's just a lowly carpenter, which would mean what? Jesus would also be what? A lowly carpenter. Just an echo. That's all it was. An echo of the past. That Joseph descended from the kingly line. It's a big deal, as Ken would say to me today. He'd say, that and four bucks would get you a coffee at Starbucks, right, Ken? Now five. I don't know either. In other words, what good is that? What good is being in a line of Joseph? Or I'm sorry, in the line of David. Nothing. It doesn't even give you bragging rights. But then Gabriel says to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. You know, she, you, know what, you know what Gabriel just declared to her? The throne line of David will be reestablished. And your son, 
Jesus will sit on that throne. Did he? Did he? Yes. Again, Matthew 28. Did Jesus talk about the kingdom of God a lot? Did Jesus at one point say the kingdom of God is in your midst? He absolutely did. Who is he referring to? Himself. And when Satan and sin and death were conquered, Jesus was a king. And then when he goes back to heaven, where does he sit? On the right hand of God on the throne. Does he not? He absolutely does. To this day, he's sitting on the throne of the kingdom of God, which is the line of David. This, this is really important stuff. This is not just a history lesson of, of, of reminders of prophecy fulfilled. Oh, it's rich that way, but this is going to become much more significant than that. Yes, that's right. It's already, it's already, as we've said many, many times, the kingdom is, not will be. It is. Absolutely. I was reading this morning in, in a commentary that said this is talking about the millennial reign. No, this is now. And it was then. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And it goes on, the prophecy goes on, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. The promise that, that, that uh, Tom read this morning is that the, that, that the kingly line of David will go on forever. And here it gets specified. He is not just various Kings will sit, because that's what it was in David's time, right? You got Solomon, then we get the split kingdom, and you get all the kings of Judah that, that, that pour through that line. Some have a occasional reflection of the future Messiah. Some don't have any at all, right? But that line continues for a number of years until Babylon. Then it ends. But here it goes from a generic line to specifics. He will give to him the throne of his father David, and he, verse 33, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. We cannot miss the point that when he says he will reign over the house of Jacob, he is not talking merely about the physical nation of Israel. He is referencing spiritual Israel that, we'll, that the scriptures talk about in the New Testament. The house of Jacob is the house of his children. The kingdom of God expands at this point in time, at this declaration expands, especially as, as, as the crucifixion, um, uh, 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 death, resurrection, ascension, and the spread of the gospel 
to all the world, right? It expands. We've been looking at the book of Acts. It expands from Israel, physical, out into the entire world of believers. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. This prophecy. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will reign in his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is banking on the promise realized as we pray according to that prayer today. The promise of God realized. The promise of God accomplished. And yet people are still being added to the kingdom. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be the house of Jacob's king. How long? Forever. And then he concludes the prophecies in verse 33 and saying, and of his kingdom there will be no end. A lot of people say that that no end is referring to forever again, but it isn't. It isn't. That was already stated in the previous statement. This is not just a restatement of what is already said, because he just said he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So it is forever. But when he says at the end, and of his kingdom there will be no end, it's talking about the idea, yes, the, it, that the, the kingdom will go forever, but it's talking about that the kingdom will be what? Not just forever, but ultimately the kingdom will involve all, all the redeemed, forever. Well, the distinction is it's not an empty kingdom. You know, you can have a king and, 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 and have a kingdom, but this kingdom is full forever. So on the one hand, he will be king over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, the kingdom in its full fruition will go forever. No borders, no anything. It will be forever and ever. It's, it's a subtle distinction, but it's important we understand it's not an empty kingdom. It's a full kingdom forever. God is rushing this kingdom to its final conclusion, and its final conclusion will go forever full of those who are his. So the kingdom itself will go forever as well. Mary responds to all this, and her response is, how shall this be since I am a virgin? Now this is not a statement of unbelief, like it was with Elizabeth. Instead, this is like, explain to me. Explain to me how this will be. And, and, and the Spirit explains in 35 and following, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, that will be born or to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He's a set-apart one. And how set-apart is he? He is the Son of God, uniquely set apart. I don't want to camp on that too long. But verse 36 goes on, and Behold, the evidence of this is, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month with, with her who was called barren. The evidence, the sign, as it were, is, this is a sign before the sign, right? 
the sign is, is, is just to help you understand this, Elizabeth, who is barren, who is beyond age-bearing er, years, is, uh, is of child, and she's in her sixth month. Interestingly, as we already read in the very beginning, verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her response is, is striking, isn't it? Her response is stunning. Her response is, okay. You do what, you, what you're supposed to do, and the Lord does what he's supposed to do. And I am his servant. And I, I gladly and willingly embrace everything that that means. And all the ramifications of that. Now, why do I, why do I bring up verse 38 as, as a very important verse? It's because of this. Mary received those five prophecies in 32 and 33. And those five prophecies were huge. They were life-altering for Mary, weren't they? Absolutely. They were absolutely life-altering to her and for her. But they were also time-altering, weren't they? They changed everything, didn't they? Those five prophecies changed everything. Hopelessness to hope. Kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light. Enemy of God to friend of God. Condemned to adopted. Dead life. They changed everything, didn't they? Hopefulness to sure hope. Not just for Mary, but for humanity. Didn't they? It changed everything. It altered everything. Doomed to rescued. Changed everything. And for Mary, it changed her, didn't it? It absolutely did. It took Mary from being a classic, typical young girl, didn't it? A prototypical young female fallen human. It took her from that to Mary saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's a stunning shift, isn't it? Where'd that come from? The Holy Spirit, what did you miss? Favor. That's where it came from. It came from, oh, favored one. It, it came from grace shining upon Mary, the ramifications of grace shining upon Mary, that Mary would respond to this statement and say, Behold, I am the servant 
of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. You know what the text tells us? In the middle we have these great prophecies, right? And that's the hinge for all of this. The favor of God upon Mary caused her to respond the way she responded. And the result of all this is what? The result, not of Mary, but the result of the Spirit working and God working in all of this is what? Yeah, but ultimately in this storyline, specifically it is the redemption of mankind, right? The redemption of mankind. Christ being born of this virgin. And the result of this is that this one born lives the perfect life. He's the perfect God-man. And he is eventually crucified, arrested and crucified, dies and rises again and ascends back to heaven and promises to return. And he is on the throne. The ramification of grace. The ramifications of grace shining upon Mary is her response is, is what? I'm a servant of you, of God. I'm a servant of the Lord. May you do with me as you say in your word. Why do I point that out? Because Christ has come, hasn't he? He has been born of this virgin Mary. He has lived that perfect life as prophesied. He has been arrested. He has been tried. He has been crucified. He has died on that tree. He was buried in the tomb for three days. He did rise from the grave. He did walk among men alive once again. He did ascend. He will return. And according tightly to this text, he is on the throne of his kingdom. And his kingdom is how long? Forever. And his kingly rule will have no end. And people are being brought into his kingdom, are they not? By his, what? Good pleasure, his favor, his grace. People are being brought into the kingdom. Now the ramifications of the text we're looking at this morning, the ramifications of this Christmas text is stunning to me. In order for you and I to be saved, in order for anyone to be saved, what must happen? But at the very beginning and all the way through, you said it, Charles, what? We have to be recipients of grace, right? Without recipients of grace, will any of that happen? Will any of it happen? No. Would, without Mary being a recipient of God's grace, would she be bearing the child called Jesus? No. 
would she be responding the way she responds without being a recipient of God's grace? The answer is no. The ramifications of Mary being a recipient of God's grace is that Jesus is born of this Virgin Mary. And as a result, as we just said, he lives, he dies, he resurrects, and he ascends. And he's on the throne. Does all of that have ramifications? Does it? It better. Otherwise, what's the point? If it has no ramifications, what's the point? It actually is really stupid. If it doesn't have any ramifications, it's really stupid to celebrate Christmas, isn't it? Isn't it really stupid to celebrate someone who was born 2,000 years ago today if it doesn't have ramifications? It's kind of ludicrous, isn't it? It's silliness. It's emptiness. But it does have ramifications. He is on the throne. He remains on the throne. He will always remain on the throne. And the one on the throne, that is the one who is king, has promised to return. And in the interim, the one who is on the throne has promised what? To never leave us nor forsake us. Right? Now he has gone to heaven, but in his spirit, his Holy Spirit, he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And he even said, if I leave you, Physically, I will give you my spirit and he will do what? Even greater things in you. And then he says, in who? Yes, the ones who are recipients of his grace. He will do even greater things. Referring to where we are today. Now we get a glimpse of it, don't we, right here? Don't we get a glimpse of it? Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. The result of which is she responds how? Verse 38. Correct? That's not because Mary's such a great woman, right? It's not because she's so wonderful. It's because God's grace is upon her that she responds this way. Should we, can I just ask you a quick question? Should we not expect today Responses like that? Shouldn't we? Should we not expect that if, if his kingdom is forever? If, should we not expect if, if he's on his throne forever? Should we not expect if he is great? Should we not expect if he is called the son of the most high because he is the son of the most high? Should we not expect That for those who are in the kingdom, we have God's grace shine on us as well? Because there's no entrance into the kingdom apart from God's grace. We remain in God's kingdom. Why? And that is all because of his grace. Is it not? 
By grace we've been saved. By grace we are sanctified. By grace we are everything if we are in the kingdom. Correct? From beginning to end, every step of the way, should we not expect, just as when with Mary there was a response, there was, there was demonstration of the effectiveness of God's grace, it was demonstrated in the reality that she did give birth to a son as a virgin, right? And everything that was said about Jesus by Gabriel came to fruition, So his grace was powerful, wasn't it? Was it effective? Was it absolutely effective? Would we not expect then that Mary would respond the way she responded because of God's grace? Yes. So would we, should, take wood off, should we not expect that for those who are truly in the kingdom of God, God's grace would have kind of the same effect? Should we not expect that? I'm not talking about the virgin birth. I'm talking about the response that we see in verse 38 in light of the ramifications of the virgin birth. In light of the ramifications of the perfect God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, should we not expect, because of the fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament in Christ, should we not expect that recipients of God's grace should have similar responses, effect, demonstration? Should that not be expected? Can I just share with you real quickly what I, I, I find sad is too often, here's what we, we kind of think. We kind of think that today that it's somehow okay that although God's on the throne and his kingdom is forever, right? His kingdom is forever. We, we agree with these statements, don't we? We agree with these five prophecies. But we kind of think that somehow it's still okay that we keep a foot in both kingdoms. Don't we? We kind of think it's still fine that we have a foot in the kingdom of God and we got a foot in the kingdom of the evil one. A foot in the kingdom of light and a foot in the kingdom of darkness. We kind of have this idea that that's somehow fine because someday we'll get to heaven, then we'll be fully into the kingdom of God. Is that something that's seen in the scriptures as acceptable? Yes. That's why I mentioned, Tom, that, that his death was over sin, Satan, and death. It wasn't just over Satan and death. It was sin, Satan, and death, wasn't it? Absolutely. It no longer has dominion over his children. That's what it says. But we find ourselves deceived almost. 
And, and the only, only thing I can come away with is, is, is several fold. Either we really don't think that his kingdom is all that great, or we don't think that his kingly power is all that impressive, his saving ability is all that great, or we think that he just kind of winks an eye at our desire to keep our foot in the wrong kingdom. But that's not found in the scriptures. Exactly. I think, I think, I think Tom, what you're hitting on is really a key issue. This idea that the kingdom's not now, it's just millennium. Well, then this idea that my foot's in the, in the kingdom of darkness is, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But the reality is the kingdom is now. It is now. We are in, if we are believers, if we are true believers, we are in the kingdom today, and there are ramifications of that. There are effects of that. And it's not just echoes that are coming backwards to today from some future kingdom. We're not living in echoes. We're in the kingdom. And kingdom livers hate the enemy kingdom. Do they not? And why would we ever possibly hate the other kingdom? Because God's favor is shining upon us. Because God has shined his grace and is shining his grace upon us. This Christmas season, we rejoice, do we not? And is it appropriate to rejoice that Christ came and was born of a virgin? Absolutely. It's absolutely appropriate, not just to rejoice during this time frame, but all the time. But that rejoicing should never, ever be devoid of reflection. You realize that? That rejoicing should never be devoid of personal reflection and examination. That Rejoicing should never be devoid of personal confession resulting from reflection and examination. Should we be, we be rejoicing today? Absolutely. Should we be grieving today? Absolutely. Paul said, always rejoicing and always grieving. As people, one of the evidence that we are recipients of God's mercy and grace is that we will find ourselves, like Mary, because the Spirit is at work in us, we'll find ourselves saying, believing and saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And at the same time we are saying it, we will find ourselves saying, that's not me. I desperately need God's grace. God, forgive me. Because I still find myself deceiving myself and being attracted by all the baubles of this world. Change me, that I will love your kingdom 
and love your kingship ever more, ever greater. We ought to be a people who grieve. We ought to be a people who grieve all the time in the midst of our rejoicing. Because our God is merciful and gracious, and yet too often we do what? We presume and take it for granted. So yes, we should rejoice. But that rejoicing should cause us to look at ourselves and realize realize that, that we are people who still desperately need God's grace to shine upon us. And if we find ourselves not doing that, rejoicing without grieving, rejoicing without reflection, rejoicing without examining, rejoicing without confession, could I say something to you? It may not be what? You may not be part of the kingdom. Because that's what kingdom people do. That's how kingdom people respond to the greatness of the one who is great. That's how they respond to the greatness of the one who is great. That is how kingdom people respond <clears throat> to the one who is called the Son of the Most High. They treat him like the Son of the Most High because of God's grace. This is how the people of the kingdom respond to the one who is on the throne of their father David. They fall down in submission to the king. We reign over the house of Jacob forever, and if we're in the house of Jacob, we are what? We are in pursuit by his grace of being loyal subjects, are we not? Could I just take the verse and take it out of its context and take li liberties with it? And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am still a virgin? Could I just take this grotesquely out of its context and say, how will this be that we could be that way? Just like Mary, she could not give birth because she was a virgin, right? In the same way, you and I cannot live kingdom lives, can we? By ourselves? Can we? No, we cannot. How can this be, God? In the same way that God said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will do all of this, <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit will accomplish what you cannot accomplish, right? In the same way, the Holy Spirit will do for you and me and in you and me what you cannot do. <laughs> right? He brought a physical birth, the perfect God-man. And in us, he brings a new birth. Does he not? Because of that physical birth? He does what only he can do. Do we work? Well, yeah, we work because he works. And that's only because he is shining his grace upon us. Our prayer 
during this Christmas season ought to be the same as Mary's, shouldn't it? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God, do in me what you have promised to do. Now, he didn't promise to give you and I a virgin birth. But he did promise that the new birth would have its effects, didn't he? He promised that the new birth would have amazing and dramatic life-altering effects, did he not? And the evidence of that is pretty clear in the New Testament, isn't it? In all the believers of the New Testament that are recorded? Is it not evident? It is absolutely evident. God, have your way with me. Cause me to see when it is not what it ought to be. And have your way in my life. So that I will be ever rejoicing and ever grieving. And the whole time, grieving and rejoicing, glorifying you. That is the ramifications, personally, of what he has accomplished when he came. He set us free. Brought us into the kingdom. His kingdom is forever. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in me as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We so often want to separate out our lives. We want to have the rejoicing in the, in, in, in the reality that Jesus has come. That he was born of a virgin. That he suffered and died and rose again and ascended and, and will be returning. But we so often feel comfortable in divorcing the ramifications of that in our lives today. But you are a jealous God. And you will not share your, your glory with another. And so, Lord, we ask that your will will be done in us. We ask that you will work in us to cause us to be your faithful servants for your glory, even though we still sin. And when we do, Lord, I pray that you will draw us hard and fast to repentance and to worship. What an amazing thing it is that you broke through time and space and dwelt among us. Protect us from being deceived into thinking that just we wait for a future time. This is the time. This is the place for your glory to be seen in us. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen.